with Kate, my wife, and uh, we saw a shop that we really like. It's one of these kind of shops um, that has lots of home furnishings in it. And in it are things like little um, hearts with things written on them, little slogans or those things that you hang on the wall with those motivational slogans on them. Uh, filled with things like, home is where the heart is, uh, don't let your dreams be dreams, turn them into reality, that kind of thing. Many things will call these things, many people will call these things mantras um, or motivational aids or you'll often see them on office walls. Uh, I was just talking to Joe a minute ago. This is pretty much his job uh, to create motivational uh, things to keep HR going. Um, you may even have one in your office, uh, a motivational poster, that kind of thing. This is what many people use to motivate them in their life. How they see the world and what, uh, and what they revisit when they need a reminder of what they're doing. Now, it's interesting the word mantra was originally a describing word for a word or a group of words believed to have psychological or spiritual power. Here are, uh, here are, uh, that's a, an example of a Buddhist mantra. I'm not going to read it out now because uh, I can't read Sanskrit. But um, uh, some more examples from today are, um, oh, you can't quite see that one. That says on the back of someone's neck, keep your head up and your heart open and be yourself because everyone else is taken, which is an Oscar Wilde quote, which uh, some people quite hold to. And I suppose psychologically encouraging someone is still a very good definition for today's idea of motivational uh, thinking or mantras. I work in a school, um, and when I do lunchtime clubs, which I do quite often, we have craft activities sometimes, and a lot of the kids will write um, some of the slogans on them. You know, they'll be writing in a key ring or something, uh, such as, create your own destiny, and then they, uh, they take, if you're not the hero of your own story, then you're missing the whole point of humanity and turn it into, you are the hero of your own story. And then live with no excuses and love with no regrets. And all these things are spiralling around their heads. This is what I come back to. You then got the classics, keep calm and carry on. Um, and only God can judge me now, or only God can judge me. And a classic, YOLO, which stands for you only live once, which is... Something that really irritates me as young people walk around saying it all the time. Uh, interesting that I saw this uh, on a motivational website. Um, the next one. Nope, it's not there. Is it there? Okay, it was, uh, yeah, sorry. Eat, drink, and be merry. Um, and this got me thinking. Actually, what, where does that come from? I've heard that before. And I looked in Isaiah 22, verse 12 to 14, and it said this. The Lord, the Lord Almighty called you on that day to weep and to wail, to tear out your hair and put on sackcloth. But see, there is joy and revelry, slaughtering of cattle and killing of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, you say, for tomorrow we die. The Lord Almighty has revealed this in my hearing. Till your dying day, this sin will not be atoned for. Not a particularly positive message in the Bible. Um, you know, the idea that the Lord was looking for some kind of repentance and they all decided that they were going to eat, drink and be merry and tomorrow we die and all that kind of thing. Um, but somehow we've managed to turn this into uh, a motivational uh, word for today's modern person. Um, in fact, many of these motivational things hold quite false hope. Only God can judge me. This was actually written on a young person's arm uh, in a tattoo that I saw once. Um, and he said, well, yeah, the reason is, is because uh, only God can judge me. So no, no, no humans can judge me. And I said, well, that's all very well, but God is the ultimate judge. And I don't think he quite understood the, the, the seriousness of only God can judge me now. He's the ultimate judge. Um, so there's this false hope that comes out. There's a... Uh, 
it's, it, it just started to trouble me a little bit. And it's not a bad thing to have positive, motivational messages up in your office. I've got keep calm and carry on up in my office. Quite a cliche, really. Um, and Kate, I know, my wife has got a, a board up in her office with, with a quote of the week, a positive quote of the week up on the board, which, you know, they're not bad things to have, but the trouble is they're not scriptural. And they're not from Scripture. And as Christians, we should be motivated to live our lives by the foundation of Scripture. I recently saw a teenager who was describing a situation that he got into, and his conclusion was that justice would be served, and the only way he could get justice if he got revenge. And he quoted the well-known verse, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth at me. Completely out of context. Absolutely, completely out of context. So often... These verses that people are quoting, these things that, that, that people are using, are so out of context, and even the meaning of Scripture can be distorted, and people can be living their lives by false meaning. You see, the enemy can't create anything. Only God is the creator. He can only, the enemy can only distort the words of God. And so this person was, was living with a distortion. Uh, in Genesis, you know, the, the enemy says, did God really say to you that you can't eat from the tree? It was a distortion of God's word. And as Christians, we should now learn well-taught and in-context scripture to motivate our lives and motivate us in, into living what God wants us to do, not a skewed version. This should be revealed by the Holy Spirit and, and also this idea of living in this supernatural culture where God is just able to move amongst us, the lamp to our feet. The nation of Israel knew how important it was learning the word of God and uh, using it as a motivation. In Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today will be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. It was so important to them getting what the word of God is and in their heads and living by it. It still happens today. Jewish people still, uh, quite um, religious Jewish people still have those words bound on their foreheads and around their forearms, you can't really see it very well, but they also write it on their doorposts and on their gates just so that they know what the words are. So what motivates us to share what God has done in our lives? What motivates us to serve in church? And what motivates us to use the gifts that God has given us? I want to look at a couple of well-known passages from the Bible first and then give illustrations and draw practical application from it. And the first passage refers directly to this text in Deuteronomy. So if you've got your Bibles with you, if you turn to Luke 10, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. I'm afraid it's not going to come up on the screen because it's not. Um, I didn't have time. Luke 10, 25 to 37. It's entitled, in some Bibles, The Parable of the Good Samaritan. What motivates us? On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? 
In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. The priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and he saw him. He took pity on him, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he, went, then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was the neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of a robber? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The parable that Jesus tells here is a very familiar parable to many of us, but it is not so much the parable that I want to look at, it's the verses that the expert in the law quotes to Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind, and love your neighbour as yourself. I want to use these principles to show how they can motivate the way we serve God. So let's look at love the Lord your God. In verse 25, right at the beginning, it says, On one occasion, the ESV, uh, English Standard Version says, And behold, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus and says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus would have known that he was an expert of the law and so asks him to give his own answer. He takes the, his answer from Deuteronomy, passage that we read earlier, Love the Lord your God. And a Leviticus passage, which says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. The Deuteronomy passage is often referred to as the greatest commandment, and the Leviticus passage is known as the love commandment. Both of these would have been really important to those who understood the law at that time. And evidently in verse 28, Jesus affirms that this is correct. You have answered correctly. He even states that if the lawyer were to do this, he will live. When he says this, Jesus is referring to loving the Lord your God and that part of the statement. You see, in the previous verses, in verse 21, uh, um, he'd indicated that to know the Father, you also need to know the Son. It says... Uh, It's verse 22, sorry. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son. So there was already a conversation going on about salvation and how to know the Father. So our first motivation in in serving God is love the Lord your God with everything you have, accepting all that he has done. We heard last week to be as undivided for him as he is for us. It's a heart response to what God has done. When Jesus says, do this and live, he is saying that a right relationship with God, what God deserves, loving him with everything that we have, which again came out in some of the things in worship today, it brings life. God loves us so much that he was willing to send his only son to die, to remove all the pain, hurt, guilt and shame that our sin brings us and to lead us into a life of freedom. 
Those who believe, who enter into a restored relationship with God, those who put him first, those who love him with everything they have, accept the love that he gives us, will find life. And why would we not want to love God, who has done all this for us when we didn't even deserve it? There's times when I sit and I think, how am I even in this situation? The things that I have done do not deserve freedom. The things I have done in my life do not deserve the love of, an incre- of, of the biggest creator, the one who is bigger than everything we have, we sung earlier. But he did it all for us, and we didn't even deserve it. The chief end of humankind is to love God wholly. We are designed to love, but we must love the right person. We must love God first. We need to repent of times when we have not put God first, and then remember who we are in Christ. We're forgiven, we're restored, we're redeemed, we're sons, we're daughters, we're adopted, we're ambassadors on this earth for Christ. That, I think, is motivation to serve God and his plans. So we need to love the Lord our God with everything we have, because he loved us first. Before we move on to have a look at the second motivation of loving our neighbours, this would be a fantastic time just to look at that last part of verse 27. If you've got it there, it says, love your neighbour, and those two words, as yourself. Sometimes it's, it's difficult when you come across a passage like this and you think, maybe I should just leave that bit out, because that's quite an awkward part to, to, to talk about. That's quite awkward, because some people don't love themselves. But I think this is the identity issue. This is the thing about identity. Accepting our identity in Christ is a great starting point to allowing us to love ourselves. We've got talks on the website that are all about the identity of Christ and who we are in Christ and what Christ does for us when we accept what he did for us and what he will do in our lives. If we're to love our neighbours as ourselves, as we're going to go on to look at, then we need to love ourselves in the way that God sees us restored, forgiven, all those things I listed off a minute ago, that is how God sees us. God has done so much for us, and God is God. He deserves everything. But we need to have a true love for God, a right place, a love for who he is, and an acceptance of who we are in him, loving ourselves. So that's all I really want to say on that bit, because we've got a lot of stuff on, uh, you know, a lot of talks already on that. But it's just worth holding that in mind, that actually when we're doing this, we're loving our neighbours as God sees us and how we love ourselves. We'll see next that out of this love for God comes a love for our neighbours. So verse 29, it says, But what he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, Who is my neighbour? See, I think at this point, the lawyer has got himself a bit confused. And he doesn't quite understand that Jesus is talking about salvation, do this and live, but it's received in the context of a loving relationship with God. Rather, he appears to still think that he has to earn salvation. He focuses on this second part of the reply about the neighbour and seeks to affirm where his responsibility lies. It's almost like he's continuing to put Jesus to the test. Well, who exactly is my neighbour? How far do I need to go? How, you know, what kind of people do I need to love? Obviously, I love the people who are close to me, but really, who is my neighbour? How far? Come on, come on, how far? And Jesus replies with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now in this, the parable, the priest and the Levite would have been the hero characters to the, to the, to the, the, uh, the man who was listening and to anyone else who was listening. 
They just left the beaten man, though. They just left him by the side of the road, which would have been quite shocking to hear. Well, hang on, that's not how a priest and a a Levite would have gone about. The Samaritan would have been absolutely hated by the expert of the law, as in the culture of the Jewish nation, because the Samaritans lived in the north, and they were despised partly due to their intermarrying with enemies and their mixed worship of God and other idols. They just weren't seen as worthy enough to to even be looked at or to even be bothered with. In fact, it just shows how much the Samaritan were disliked when Jesus asks in verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert replies, the one who had mercy on him. He couldn't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He just said the one who had mercy on him. So, so telling at that point. Jesus affirmed to the expert in the law that his answer was correct and told him to do likewise. Must have been so so strange to, st- to stand there and just be gone, yeah, that's right, go and do it then. What, what does that mean? You know, the, again, to, 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 this, to this, um, this lawyer who was quite confused at this point. We are to love the Lord our God with everything we have, and we'll only find salvation in a relationship with God through accepting the love he showed for us through Jesus. To know the Son is to know the Father. But our second motivation is loving our neighbour. This is a product of loving God, loving those who are made in the image of God. Out of our love for God will come an overflow for one another. You see, the Samaritan was the literal neighbour to those whom Jesus was speaking to. They were just across the border, but they had wildly different ideas. How do we love those who are just across the border, but have wildly different ideas to us? those who don't really seem to fit with what we believe. We don't really seem to have much in common with them. You know, we've we've all got neighbours, I'm assuming, you know, people who live around us, but sometimes they don't quite fit with with, with where we are. We, We get uncomfortable with that. Well, I believe that God's been speaking to me about one way that we can start loving those uh, around us, and that is love those who have the same or similar ideas, or at least the same foundation. And that's the people in here. That's the people who's sitting next to us. That's the people who we know have the same ideals. If you're a Christian here, that's people who are Christians, the church. And this will overflow out. So I want to very briefly look at how we do that and bring a bit of application. So if you can turn to John chapter 13, verses 31 to 35. A little bit further on. It says this, John thirteen thirty one to 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Quite confusing, but carry on. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So this 
passage in John, is, uh, John 13, is often seen as the start of a summary of uh, the whole of the book of John, all the way up to the book of uh, well, it's chapter 17. And it's basically, it's, it's seen as a bit of a summary uh, of, of Jesus and what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. But this passage is also the moment after Judas exits the Last Supper. Jesus is explaining that once he is glorified, the disciples can't go with him. And then he leaves them with a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. Now we've already seen that the love commandment, love your neighbor, would have been well known to those people. And so that idea wouldn't have been new. Love one another, love your neighbor. Yeah, that sounds the same. That's not new. But the new bit is that it's now within the context of the cross, which is to come. The divine love that is poured out in a degree not seen before. Jesus says, love as I have loved you. So how has Jesus loved us? I've touched a little bit on it, but he's loved us so much that he was willing to lay down his life for us. To give us what we don't deserve, that's grace, and uh, and not let us have what we do deserve, that's mercy. Like in the passage in Luke, this is not a salvation by works thing. It's not the more we love, the more we're saved. It's the outworking of the love we have for God through what he did at the cross. By this shall all people know that you are my disciples. This willingness to show grace and mercy and laying down of our lives for others will demonstrate to the world that the disciples are, you know, demonstrate to the world that the disciples were the followers of Jesus. And that was not an exclusive thing for the disciples. It's not an exclusive thing just for the church. It involved being light that drew people in. We see in the first, uh, the first few chapters of Acts the fact that the Holy Spirit filled the believers and thousands became because this word was preached and the love that they had for one another, they shared everything they had. And the love they had for one another meant that many people were drawn. A community of believers who show grace and mercy and putting others first will spill out into those we meet who are our neighbours. I want to share a story, but I've not had strange story. I've not had permission to share this story publicly, so I've changed the names of the people, and the circumstances have been generalised. Some of you might know what I'm talking about anyway. But we've got some friends in another church, and this church runs a toddler group, very much like our own church. And one of the leaders started talking to a lady, we'll call her Laura, uh, with a baby in the supermarket, and invited her to the toddler group. How amazing would that be? You're just walking around, and you say, "We've got a baby. Come along to our toddler group." That's what she did. Um, so she started coming along. This then led to, uh, to, to Laura and her family becoming good friends with another family in the church who went to the toddler group who have children of similar age and they started to meet socially. Unfortunately, Laura's husband, Mike, became seriously ill and has been told actually he won't probably see the year out. This subsequently led to the church rallying around them and providing meals, giving lifts, looking after their children... Laura, Mike and their wider families have been completely overwhelmed by this. Kate, my wife and I had the privilege of spending a weekend with them recently and Kate and Laura were having a conversation about faith and Kate asked her whether she believed in God. Laura said, I think I do. I think I believe in God. But what I can see, what is tangible, is the way that the church has supported us as a family. The love that some of the members of that church had for one another had overflowed to their neighbours. The grace and mercy and putting others first attitude had a direct 
impact on Laura and Mike and was clear testament of putting people, of putting this verse into action. And these weren't the leaders of the church. This was the body of the church, the congregation. They'd taken their own initiative and, uh, and, and seeing a need and responded to it. They served one another and their wider community. And by this shall all people know that you are my disciples. Their motivation for helping others came from the love that they had for God because of what he had done for them in their lives. And the love that flowed from that to the others in the church and then beyond was literally life-changing because I had the privilege of leading Mike to the Lord at that weekend. So what motivates us to share what God has done in our lives? What motivates us to serve in the church? What motivates us to use the gifts that God has given us? I have a look at these three. What motivates us to share what God has done in our lives? What motivates us to do that? Well, number one, it's going to get quite samey, you'll, you'll realise, I love God and I want to honour him in my life. I tell others because it gives glory to God. I love the Lord my God with everything I have. And I, I, I want to bring him glory. In Psalm 145, it says, All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all people might know of your acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. I tell others because I love God, and I love what God has done in my life, and I want to bring glory to him. And secondly, I love my neighbours. I want other people to know. Why would I hold back on what God has done in my life? Why would, I, why would I want to keep it to myself? If you've seen a great film, you tell people. If you've seen something, you know, something as trivial as, you know, oh, this, was, this, was, this was a really good holiday I've been on, you tell people. My life's been transformed and changed. Why would I not tell people? Why would I not tell people that I once was dead and now I'm alive? Why would I not tell people that I was blind and now I see? What motivates me in the church? What motivates to serve me? To serve me? What motivates me to serve in the church? First and foremost, I love God for what He has done in my life. I want to give back to Him wholeheartedly. That's what I do in worship. When I lead worship in the church, I just want to give glory back to God for everything He has done in my life. It's amazing this afternoon when we just started to worship and we put God in His rightful place. That's what we did this afternoon. We said, God, we're here for you. I think even that was, uh, Helen's word said, actually, we're here for God. And <laughs> that's what we're here to do. We're here to worship God and we're here to give Him glory. And secondly, I love you guys. I love the congregation. I love my neighbour. I want to see you guys develop further in worship. Help give the space and the environment to give praise and also receive from God as well. And this springs out of the love that I have for God and the relationship with him. And I think that is something that goes across the whole of the church. Why do we serve in kids' work? For those who serve in kids' work, we do it because we love God. We do it because we love God and we want to give him glory. And secondly, we love the kids and we want to see them come into a relationship. Why do we do hospitality? Because we love God. We love the fact that we're here and we love the fact that God is is just first and foremost in everything we do. And secondly, we love people. We love to see people interacting with other people, praying with one another and sharing stories of their week. Everything, everything is driven and motivated by this 
these, these two simple things. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbour as yourself. And then throw another one in for good measure. What motivates us to use the gifts that God has given us? I love God and I love what he's done in my life and I want to bring God glory. In 1 Peter 4 it says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's grace, very grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen, it says at the end. I love God and I love what he's done in my life. I want to bring him glory by what he's given to me. He's given me gifts to use. And I love the church. I want other people to be built up by the gifts that God's given, the spiritual gifts that God's given me. In Ephesians 4 it says, And he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Because we love one another, why would we not want to see each other built up? But because we love God in the first place. This should be the same in all areas of serving in church life and outside. We should do everything because God is foremost and deserves all our attention. So in everything, he will be the focus. Whatever you do, it says in Colossians, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. It says, obey those who are in charge of you, obey your masters, but do everything as if working for the Lord. Then out of the love that God shows, love one another as God loves us. How can we show mercy? Not giving what is deserved. I think we can forgive very quickly. We can hold short accounts with each other. We can speak well of one another. God showed us so much mercy We can do that with other people. How do we show grace? Giving what's not deserved. Share things together. If I've got something you need, then go and buy it. Just come and borrow it. Give it back. But you know, (laughs) Uh, give things away. If you haven't, if you don't need it, give it away. Random acts of kindness. A few years ago, um, we were living in Solihull, and somebody dropped a hundred pounds through our letterbox in a white envelope, unmarked. It was amazing. We just thought that day, we could just do with a little bit extra this month just to cover a few things. And there it was. We had no idea who it was, but, um, you know, I don't know who they were, but they blessed us greatly with the fact that this random act of kindness had just come through. They showed so much grace. We didn't deserve that £100. We had nothing to earn it, but it was just a blessing that was given. We can grow together. We can spend more time together with no agendas. How amazing is it just to go and hang out with people, have a coffee, just go and sit without this kind of underlying undertone of, well, I wanted to talk to you about this, actually. Or, uh, you know, look out for one another. If you're living in the freedom of Christ, if you know who you are, help others. Help others that you see. Love others as we love ourselves through what Christ has done. So what motivates us? Let these biblical biblical principles or commandments motivate us. Let us always come back to keeping God first. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind. Love him and then take that love that God has for us, the overwhelming, all-encompassing love, and love others in the same way.